The message today is the voice of the seven thunders. Chapter 9 concludes with the sounding of the sixth trumpet. We saw that last week in chapter 9, verses 13 through 21. The seventh trumpet that announces Christ's reign does not happen until chapter 11, verse 15. Therefore, chapter 10, which is 11 verses long, through chapter 11, verse 15, constitutes an interlude. That occurs periodically throughout the book. What is meant by an interlude is a pause, a break in the action, if you will. This interlude is comprised of two events, here in chapter 10, the other one in chapter 11. The first event is a vision which John himself becomes a participant, and the second event focuses on two remarkable witnesses. The title, The Seven Peals of Thunder, you know what a peal of thunder is? It's a clap of thunder. And I believe it was Thursday evening or Friday evening, as I was finishing up my notes, I lost electricity because it was raining and thundering outside, which I said, praise God for the rain. But I could hear the thunder as it came from the east, and it would just roll over another claps of thunder on the west side of the house. You've, you've been in a storm like that, have you not? The different claps of thunder and how it rumbles. But the seven thunders in this context, in this passage, is more than just weather rumblings. Each peal of thunder must have carried with it a discernible message. Because in verse 4 we see that John is, written to, John is told to seal up what these seven peals of thunder have spoken. Now, the opening is similar to the, the seals, the sounding of the trumpets. But what would demand the sealing of what the seven thunders spoke? Why was that sealed? Why was that not revealed to us? We'll get there in a moment. David used thunder to describe the voice of God. Psalm chapter 18, verse 13 the Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered His voice, hailstones and coals of fire. Then again, in Psalm 29, verses 3 and 4, the voice of the Lord is upon the waters, the God of glory thunders, the Lord is over many waters, the voice of the Lord is powerful, and the voice of the Lord is majestic. And just as my brother pointed out, He can speak Loudly, because he is God, but he also can speak in a still, small voice that we see, as you alluded to David, I believe it's in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11, I believe right in there, that we read about how he talked to David in a still, small voice. Now look at verse 1. I saw another stronger, mighty angel coming down out of heaven. This description here, and also as we read about in verse 1, gives us the, the suggestion that this angel is one of high rank. He has a position of honor. Look how he's described in verse 1. Clothed or surrounded with the cloud. By the way, that comes from a perfect passive participle, which means that this angel has been adorned this way 
forever. It wasn't just put on them at this moment, but it has always looked like this. And this angel has been permanently clothed with this adornment. Look back in verse 1. The rainbow was upon or over or above his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet were like pearls of fire. The rainbow was about his head. It looked like a crown. And to look at his face would force you to look down. It's like if you go outside right now, you look up at the sun, which is not a good idea because it can permanently damage your eyes, cause you to go blind if you look at it long enough. What happens when your sun blinds you? You put on sunglasses, you put down the sunshade, or you just put up your, your arms like this or your hands, and you look down. It forces you to look down. And when he looks down, he sees his legs and his feet that are, are glazed, are like pillars of fire. His face was glowing so much that he forced him humbly to, to look down. This reminds me of a similar situation that the children of Israel had. Remember when Moses came down from talking with God. He had been in the presence of God. The Israelites had requested that a veil be put over his face because his face glowed so much. They couldn't even look in his general direction. Man, put a veil. I can't even look at you, Moses. He's way, I just can't look. So they, he put a place, a veil over his face. You can see that in Exodus chapter 34 verses 29 through 35. But I can imagine John having that same reaction when he held, beheld the angel's face and it was shining like the sun. He couldn't look directly at it, so he bowed his head and there he saw the angel's feet. Now some scholars suggest that the angel's description fits his message. The rainbow. What would the rainbow remind you of? God's promises through Noah. I'm going to say this, the rainbow does not represent what some people think it represents. It represents the promise of God that he made a covenant with Noah, and then never again would he flood the earth, the entire earth. That was the promise made. The pillar of fire recalls God's presence in the wilderness, and the little book or scroll in verse 2 recalls the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. Now, many have struggled with or wrestled with the identity of this angel, the Greek word there, if I pronounce this correctly, angelos, means one who has sent a messenger. Now, I'll tell you up front, there's nothing in this verse or the verses to follow that allow you to identify this angel with any amount of certainty. But, like I said last week, that does not bear on the significance of the chapter. You can have that discussion, that's fine, but it does not bear on the significance of what this chapter is telling us. The emphasis of this text is the angel's strength, the glory of his countenance. He is one of great prestige and authority. And he is called an angel, angelos. And I would disagree with some of my esteemed colleagues. I don't feel funny calling my esteemed colleagues. These guys have studied language a lot longer than I have. But I don't think this is the Christ. Because he's not called the Christ. He is called an angel. Verse 2, he goes on to tell us he had in his hand a little or a small book or scroll which was open. And he placed or planted his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. His stature may have been sufficient to make the scroll look small, but the scroll was probably already small or the book because if we see in verse 9 next week, it will be eaten. The description does acknowledge and recognize the authority of the angel, 
His authority encompasses or includes or covers all the earth, specifically all the land and the seas. There you have the description of them. Now, look what he does in verse 3. He cried out with a loud voice as when a lion wars. That's another indication of the overwhelming ability of this particular angel. And by the way, I got a little sidetracked here in my notes. A lion's roar can be heard up to five miles away. Did you know that? At one yard away from the lion, his voice can be so loud it can reach 114 decibels. Now, if you want to know how loud that is, an aircraft taking off at 200 feet full thrust on both engines makes that same type of noise. I thought about playing one, but I'm afraid I scared. I don't, some of them were real loud, but I want you to use your imagination how loud that would be. This is clearly different than the seven peals of thunder. As we will see, the seven peals of thunder respond to him crying out. Because look what he says in verse 3. When he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. Now each peal or claps of thunder was apparently clearly identifiable. This would indicate a sequence, exactly what we would expect. We saw that in the seven seals, so far in the trumpets, and then in verse, excuse me, chapter 16, we'll see that with the bowls of wrath. And John tells us in verse 4 that when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, he tells us he heard a voice from heaven telling him, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken. Once again, each class or peal of thunder must have had a discernible message. It wasn't just thunder for thunder's sake. Something was spoken. Something that John could hear and understand. He was about to write it down. So we may ask, why? What is their report? What are they saying? What would demand the sealing of their message? And this is a stark contrast to the, the seals and the trumpets and then later in the bowls. Why, in this particular instance, we the readers are kept from what the thunder has spoken. Now bear with me. Even though the tragic nature and the overwhelming consequences of the judgment of God during the great tribulation that he poured out here on earth are portrayed for us in painful and extensive details, there still remains a depth and extent of the judgments which are shared with John, but are sealed off from us, the readers. Now think about that for a second. You can jump ahead. I wish I, in fact, I encourage you, read ahead and see what happens. Read about the seventh trumpet. Read about the bowls of wrath. And yet, we're not told what the thunder is saying. Perhaps there's a depth, that, an extent that we're not just told about. I see this as an ominous threat, a warning for us, the readers. It's basically having the effect of saying, you have seen and heard about a great deal, but you're nowhere close to all my hand in judgment. So let that just burn in your mind for a second. You think what you've seen is something you haven't seen anything yet. John heard it. But ever since that time, no one knows exactly what the seven peals of thunder said. It has been sealed. 
In verse 5, he says, Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven, in verse 6, and swore by him who lives forever and ever. This is a gesture, an act, or a deed of authority and recognition. Now, the gesture does not seem to focus on the scroll itself. Rather, the focus is on the authority of the forthcoming declaration that he makes. The acknowledgement of the supremacy of the one true God and the one who's in possession of perpetual and endless life. He is swearing an oath to God. The one true God, the ever-living God. He goes on to verse 6 to describe him who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it. The Creator's continuous existence is a stark contrast to the created order. Creation, the cosmos, the universe is not eternal, it is temporal. Creation is clearly the work of Him who lives forever and ever. All of creation is part of God's creative genius, His ability, His power, the sea and all the creatures in it, the land and all its inhabitants, the heavens and all the stars and all the planets are the work of our Lord, the one true God who lives forever and ever. Reminds me of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26, where he writes, Lift up your eyes on high and see who's created these stars, the one who leads forth their mighty host by number, He calls them by name because of his greatness, his might, and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Now, most of you live out in the country, right? Tonight, when the sun goes down, I want you to go out and look at the stars. So many of them. And think to yourself, God knows every one of them by name, and he calls them out. Not only that, God knows every man, woman, and child on this planet. He knows them by name. And he's calling out to them as we just sung about softly and tenderly. He's calling out to everyone, come home, come home. And this is in stark contrast to the New Age thought where there's no distinction between the Creator and the created. Don't worship the tree, don't worship the grass, don't worship the sky, don't worship the sun, don't worship the moon. Worship the very one who created them and put them in existence. And the same one who sustains creation by the power of his word. Ooh. Think on that. He knows you. Larry, he knew Beverly before you did. And he knew that one day you'd be her husband. Beverly, he knew you. And that one day you meet Larry. He knows everything. I can go around the room. He knows you better than you know yourself. Now, you still have a freedom to choose, but God in his infinite wisdom knows what you're going to choose, and yet, if we still rebel against him, he still to this day reaches out mercy and grace to draw us back. But one day, that will cease. This is what it says in verse 6. There will be no delay no longer. Or no longer an interval of time. Judgment and the outpouring of God's wrath on iniquity have waited long enough. That's why there's an urgency to the gospel. 
Time is clicking by. And as I read those words, did you hear what he said? Time has proven to be nobody's friend. I can't go back and do yesterday again. I can't go back and do this morning again. But one thing I love about that song that he wrote, that one thing I can do, I can live like there's no tomorrow. I make opportunity of everything that comes my way and take nothing for granted. Look, he says in verse 7, But then he lay no longer in verse 7, but in the days of the voice or the sounding of the seventh angel, when he's about to sound or will blow his trumpet, then, listen to this, then the mystery of God is finished. Finished, that word means complete. It's a translation of the heirs, passive and dictive, that indicates a past action. It's done. It's over. And by the way, that word finished in the Greek is the same word spoken by Jesus on the cross when he did everything there was to do, and he said, it is finished. Nothing more to be done. And we are informed that the mystery known only to God, revealed to man through revelation given by the prophets and apostles, will be brought to its conclusion. His whole plan. As we said in Sunday school, think about this. Before God created the world, He knew what was going to happen. But He created, He had a master plan all along. He knew what was going to happen. He has a plan for your life. The best plan you can possibly have because He's the one that created you. Now, every analogy breaks down. I hope you understand that with this next analogy I like to paint for you. If you have a Ford pickup truck, are you going to buy a manual about a Volkswagen bug? It doesn't make any sense. They're not too alike. What good is that Volkswagen manual going to do you when you work on your Ford pickup or your Chevy pickup or your Chevy guy? But here's my point. Why is it that we go and find all these books, all these people on TV being interviewed about having, having your best life now when we're given the Word of God to tell us what we should do and how to live our life? Why are we listening to somebody else? Let's go back to the manufacturer. Let's go back to the one who created us in the first place and say, what do we need to do? Because I've tried everything myself and I've made a big, fat mess. Verse 7. Then the mystery of God is finished. And then verse 7, as he preached or announced or declared to his servants, the prophets. What all the angels and prophets had foretold, what had been delayed over the centuries, is coming to its conclusion and what he means by the prophets is the prophets just sit back and they wonder how God's going to pull this off. I mean, go back and read the Old Testament. He makes a promise way back to Abram, Abraham about through him all the families of earth will be blessed. He makes covenant after covenant. If you read the Old Testament, it's like a big circle. They're here with God and everything's going fine. They turn away from God and they, they fall and they sin and God corrects them. There's some judgment going on. And they confess and repent. They get on the end of the they have a revival again. It's a constant circle. And we're left to think, how is God going to bring all this to the end? You ever thought and wondered to yourself, how is this ever going to, how is God going to orchestrate all 
to an end. Put it another way, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesy of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. They wondered the stuff that God was telling them. How is he going to work this one out? How is he going to bring it to a conclusion? And what this passage of Revelation is telling me, he's going to bring it all to an end. It's all heading that way. Every event, every year, every day, every hour is pushing pulling and guiding all history to that one Pacific point in time. And remember, once the day is gone, you can't get it back. I was thinking on that just the other day. We talk about financial resources and all these other things. But one of the precious commodities I have is time. That's why people pay you by the hour, because the hours you work, you can't get them back. They're gone. I mean, think about how much time we spend working. As or how much time we spend doing what we want to do rather than spending time with our Creator. This salvation, this, this ending that has been hidden to tease and intrigue the prophets. Now everything God has promised through them will be denied no longer, but it will come to pass in rapid sequence following the sounding of the seventh angel's trumpet. God has a plan. God's had a plan for this created world Ever since he created it, nothing has taken him by surprise. If it did, he would cease to be God. Therefore, I would say in conclusion, you and I should not run from God's plans for our lives. We cannot know how much suffering or trouble is going to be that will come our way or what will be involved. Living according to his plan does not mean or guarantee a pain-free, troubled life. And that's a stark contrast to what you hear on a lot of radio and TV today. God will give you blessings. He'll give you what you need, not necessarily what you want. And think on Jesus for a second. What did Jesus tell us? You will have tribulation in this world. Not you might or if. You will. He goes on to finish that, but take heart, he says, I have overcome the world. If they hate you, remember, first they hated me, he says. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And if he's truly my master, my savior, my Lord, and I am servant, then how can I expect to be greater than the master himself? And we think about how difficult this life can be. Consider the sweetness of the certainty of God's plan. We just read about it's all going to come to conclusion. His plan. And when that seventh trumpet sounds, everything will come to conclusion. 
Think on the other side of the tribulation, the renewal of all things. All things have passed away. Behold, everything become new. The resurrection of the righteous, the beauty and glory of heaven, like we talk about in Sunday school this morning. There's no sin in heaven, none at all. No back, back, uh, bike biting, no gossip, none of that. No greed, it's gone forever. Let me share this. Think about Jesus' life on this earth. He knew full well what was in store. All the pain, the trouble, the suffering, and even the cross that Jesus endured led him to a crown. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and following. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, the saints gone on before, perhaps some of your loved ones. I like using the illustration of like a stadium. They're all up there and they're watching us and they're cheering us on to finish strong. It's not who crosses the finish line first is important, but you finish the race. It goes on to say, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You have all these voices, all these things that can get us sidetracked. He's telling us, look, run their ways and always look at the finish line where our Savior is. Fix your eyes on Him. Jesus did that, did He not? He goes on to say that, for the, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It is finished. The debt paid, the redeemed set free. It's done. For the joy that set before him, he knew he was passionate of following the Father's will, and he knew on the other side of that cross, what awaited him. Do you know what awaits you if you're a saint, if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ? You know what awaits you on the other side? Something more beautiful and splendor that I can possibly try to describe to you right now. A place of peace. A place, a place of, of love. The perfect love of God. He concludes Hebrews 12, verse 3 with this, For consider him who has endured such, such hostilities by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You know, what we're reading about in Revelation, it's difficult. And we realize time is short. But I really want to encourage you. It is a warning text, but I want to enter in the encouragement that when you feel like giving up, this is too hard. Remember what Jesus did. He was fully divine, but he was fully human. He felt emotion and pain, physical pain, just like you and I. He knows what it's like when people turn their backs on you. Peter sitting there in the upper room that night. You know what he said. I'll follow you anyway, Lord, even to the death. Just a few hours later, he denied him three times. The third time, the English translation is a little softer than how strong the Greek is. 
Jesus knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be tired, lonely, all these things. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he separated himself from the three. I'm going to pray. And he asked them, stay in prayer. And they couldn't even stay awake to pray. I imagine perhaps you got a little frustrated. You went back. You can't even stay up one hour to pray. But he's our example. Our Lord and Savior are not asking us to do anything he has not done himself. And I know as you walk out of here in just a few moments that you're going to see the news and you're going to see a lot of things going on and it seems like evil is winning every time you turn around. But I assure you, God's plan will be finished. The day of reckoning is coming. Now is the time for confession and repentance and to preach unashamedly with boldness the gospel of Jesus Christ before it's everlasting too late. Remember that, those words of that song I was reading? I'd I like to finish reading this last verse. Oh, nobody knows the hour, and no one, nobody knows the day when he will call me home to walk through heaven's gates. So I'll run this race until it's time for me to go, because I know there's a time to laugh, a time to cry. The day you're born, the day you die. But when I reach the end, it's just the beginning. Wherever he leads, I will follow and love like those tomorrow. I'm going to start living like today could be my last. What is keeping you back to being completely sold out, if you will, for Christ? He is holding nothing back. He's telling us what's going to happen. There is a point where there's going to be a day of reckoning. And his judgment and the wrath have waited long enough. And I've said this so many times, I need to repeat myself. On that day, it's not going to matter how many times you sat in the pew. It ain't going to matter how many sermons I preached. It ain't going to matter how many people I led to the Lord. None of that's going to matter. What matters is my standing with God. Do I have a relationship with him? Or will he look at me and say, depart from me, for I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. So you can know about him, know the facts about him, talk about him, read about him, and study him, but do you know him in your heart? Now is the time. If you've never given your life to Christ, I implore you to come down. And I'll introduce you to him. And everything will pass away. Your life will become new. And your life will never be the, never be the same. A peace will come over you. A peace that the world offers but can never deliver. A peace that's always there. No matter your circumstances, a peace with God. If you've done that, God's calling out to you. What's... Perhaps it's joining this body of believers. Perhaps it's becoming more involved in ministry. Perhaps it's a loved one or a friend. You're afraid of if you approach him or her that they will reject you and call you names. We need to see people like God does, don't we? 
try to take Knock it personally. They're rejecting the message. You're going to think ill will of me when I say this, but sometimes I wish I didn't know the truth. I could walk blindly around like everybody else going, this is all there is. But the problem is, the good news is I've exposed to the truth. I know the truth, and the truth has set me free. How can I sit and be silent when I know what the answer is? That's our calling. That is our mission. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We can read it. And your Holy Spirit illuminates the scriptures for us. Father, I pray for everyone in the sound of my voice. Because I know even now the enemy is whispering, Satan is whispering things that are they're not true. They're lies. Father, I pray that each of us will listen to the voice of truth, which is your voice. Not only that we'll listen to it, but we'll respond to it in complete obedience. I thank you, Father, for your love and your mercy and your grace. And I pray for so many of my friends and my family who do not know you. I don't want them to experience what I've been reading about. So, Father, I implore you. I beg of you. Do whatever is necessary. Use me. Use us as you will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.